Welcome to Weekdays with Jesus. We are weak, but he is strong. I'm Kevin Biltman, your host and recovering burned-out pastor who's here to share with you sermons and songs from men's of, friends of mine who've given me hope, and I hope they would be a blessing to you as well. Today's message is from Don Ray, preaching from the state of Washington, and at the end of this podcast, you'll hear a special song written by a friend of mine from California. For now, let's listen to Pastor Don. And that's the encouraging promise of today's text. It's in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 that Mike read for us. Paul stresses God's faithfulness. And even in his original Greek construction sentence, he says, faithful is God. He is emphasizing the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful always and in every way. God is faithful. But God's people are not. And Paul invokes three vivid examples from the Old Testament scriptures that remind us of this predicament, and then he applies them to the Corinthians. If you know your Old Testament history from the book of Exodus and Numbers, Paul is citing in the three examples, he cites Numbers 11, Exodus 32, and Numbers 25. And just briefly to bring us back to that scene and setting, the first one, the first example Paul brings up, and this is in verses 5 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, he's bringing up an instance when God's people were fairly new to their wilderness experience. They had just been led out of slavery from Egypt through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea with Moses, or if you prefer, Charlton Heston. And they went across into the wilderness, and, uh, and there they were. And so this was a new aspect of their life together. God had just baptized them and saved them miraculously through that amazing occurrence. And now that they're in the wilderness, they are complaining bitterly. Complaining bitterly about the manna, specifically, the daily bread that God had given them. And God's people are yearning for their life back in Egypt. They'd just been delivered out of slavery and, and certain death. They, they had been enslaved as God's people for 430 years and they're complaining that they don't have good enough food. Oh man, the leeks and the onions were so good back in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here in this wilderness to die, God? Moses, what's going on? We just want to go back. We just want to go back. That's the first example Paul brings up. That did not please the Lord in response because God is faithful. He relented. He gave his people quail in addition to that daily bread of manna. But he also struck them, many of them, with a plague. It wasn't a sin per se to desire the foods they had in Egypt, but you see what that also entailed was them being discontented with what God was now giving them. Right? They wanted a life of slavery, they wanted a life of servitude, they wanted a life of impurity and idolatry rather than a life of contentment with the one true God, and that was the sin. Second example, this one's in Exodus 32. You might remember this one too. Took place around 1446 BC, also when they were new in the wilderness. Moses is up on the mount meeting with God as, as, as the Lord is giving him the Ten Commandments. And God's people uh, basically approach Moses' brother Aaron and say, ah, 
Aaron, what's up with Moses? We haven't seen him for a long time and, and we're getting kind of restless here. Hey, uh, let's do our own thing, you know. Uh, so Aaron, Moses' brother, gathers up all the earrings of God's people and stupidly they fashion this golden calf and then prepare to worship the golden calf as the thing that released them from slavery in Egypt. And then they have feast and the text alludes possibly sexual partying was going on too. And then Moses comes back down the mountain, hears this rabble and this ruckus, and he says, what on God's green earth is going on? He doesn't actually say that, but that's kind of the tone. And he becomes so angry that he throws down the stone tablets, the commandments, breaks the covenant, and begins railing at the people of God and his own brother for worshiping a false god. They've just been rescued from 430 years of slavery, and that quickly they're turning toward things that cannot save them. The Lord's anger burned hot, and the Lord directs Moses then to basically release the people and each other in battle, and some 3,000 men were killed that day as a result of that sin. That's the second example Paul brings up. The third example, this is in Numbers 25, this is toward the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, right before they go into the promised land of Canaan, and again, the same cycle here, God's people have fallen into this pattern of self-indulgence, of worshiping false gods, of adultery. The Lord's anger was again kindled. He killed 23 to 24,000 of them as a result of this. He was not going to allow all these impure, sinful followers into this perfect and blessed promised land. Those are the three examples Paul brings up, and, and he applies them to the Corinthians. And essentially, we can kind of pull out some of the key, the key principles here. Being discontent with what God gives us. Being content, discontent with our lot in life. That's one principle. Yearning as they did, yearning for the trappings of this world, for the ways and wealth of the world, rather than the more modest life that the Lord might be calling us to live with the golden calf incident not only lurching into idolatry but not waiting on the Lord part of the impetus for them worshiping fashioning and worshiping that golden calf was that Moses was gone for a long time and so they took matters into their own hands lurched ahead and led themselves astray and Aaron with them self-indulgence lust fornication and adultery these are all things that took place in with and under those three examples Paul talks about, and then he applies it to the Corinthians. They were prone to the same temptations and sins, just as God's people were in the days of Moses. And uh, because nothing is new under the sun, and humankind is humankind, these temptations and sins are things that we ourselves might be prone to fall into as well. Can we enter into that story a little bit, maybe? Experiencing discontentment, a dissatisfaction with the lot in life the Lord's given us. Not wanting to wait on the Lord, lurching ahead into our own plans and asking God to baptize it. Forgetting all that God has done for us and going astray to other things for comfort and satisfaction, self-indulgence. These are all, if we're to be honest, these are all struggles that we have, you and I have, as God's people today. 
Faithful is God, but God's people are not. And through these examples, as you follow along in your notes, God is giving us a clear warning with an encouraging promise. No doubt, these, these kind of truths can be hard to hear. They would have been hard to hear for Paul's hearers in Corinth. If we see ourselves in that text in any way, and we probably should see ourselves in those texts in a number of ways, that can be hard for us to hear too. Hard for us to be confronted with the reality of our sin, that we've actually done these things and thought these things and followed this way of life. We might feel convicted or stung even. Hard to hear. But the very fact that God takes pains to tell us these things in his word is, in and of itself, a clear expression of his love for you and for us. Are you following with me? You see, it would be, we could say it this way, it would be unloving of God to be silent. Right? You're a parent, you're a grandparent, you can appreciate this. It would be unloving to not warn our children, our grandchildren, our students of things that could result in deadly outcomes. I recall being on the, uh, we we took with uh, St. Paul's at the end of the school year this past year, we took a geology field trip, a 250 mile circle, and saw a lot of the geology in our region here. And there were a couple of spots where if you took a wrong step off the edge, you were dead. And I remember one of the dads who was there, as I was dadding and pastoring both also, he was one of our chaperones, and as we got out of the car, very clearly, specifically, and bluntly, he says, guys, watch the edge of the cliff, sudden death. And he wasn't joking. You would die had you fallen off. See, it would have been unloving of that dad, unloving of us as chaperones to say, hey, Go play. Yeah, tempt fate. Tiptoe on the edge. Do your thing. Or not say anything at all. But the exhortation, the warning, was itself an expression of love for our students. And so this is what Paul is doing here. He is, uh, God is working through him, and God is faithful. God loves us, and because he does, he's going to tell us hard things sometimes. Lord, I just want to play. That cliff looks really inviting. Yeah, you might die. Don't do that. The Lord is speaking to us here. And Paul says something remarkable also. Not only does he bring up these three Old Testament examples, he says something. He says, these were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Think about that phrase, on whom the end of the ages has come. We as the church... Today, right now, we are closer to the final return of Jesus Christ than anyone in the history of the world. Think about that. We are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than anyone else in the history of the world. The end of the ages has come upon us. And so what that means is, in terms of this warning that Paul's giving us, is time is short. Time is fleeting. Jesus will return, and he may return at any moment. He might return today, or tomorrow, or 10 years from now, or 1,000 years from now. We don't know, but it's going to be soon, is the word the scripture 
uses. And so what that means is, in light of this warning Paul is giving, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to repent. Fundamentally, if you don't know and profess Jesus Christ as Lord, now is the time to say, Lord, forgive me, help me believe. Now is the time to turn to Jesus in saving faith. And if we're already there, if we already have saving faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time to repent of that thing that continues to hang on to you like a rotting bag of trash, whatever the thing is. It's idolatry at some level, right? We all struggle in different ways, but whatever that thing is now is the time to repent. Not tomorrow, not next week, not to make a New Year's resolution. The Lord's calling us now to let that thing go. And if ever we're tempted to think that we're doing just fine and don't need to live with that kind of sense of urgency, Paul comes right back to the Corinthians and us and he says, he says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It kind of echoes the Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 18. That's the passage maybe you've heard before also. Pride goes before a destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. When you think you got this life licked and you're not in danger of falling away, you're probably closer to falling away than you think. The edge of that cliff is real close. And so Paul is warning us, in love, in love, sudden death. Don't go there. Come back. Come back. Come back. And so we've been warned. You know, whatever the thing is, if, if, it's, if it's, you know, innocently flirting with the church secretary uh, or the secretary in your office, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, we, the, the, the proverb says that we can't expect to scoop hot coals in our lap without being burned, right? We're hanging out with our friends on a Friday night. Well, I've driven under the influence before. Hop in, it'll be fine. No, you might die. Or you might kill someone else. It just happened on I-90. A drunk driver killed a college student. You might die. That addiction that you've become used to might go too far one time and you might die. Or the sin that comes from that thing might result in ruined relationships. So Paul here, these are hard truths to hear. Paul here is warning us. He is warning us. Take heed, you've been warned. Be sober-minded. Keep close watch on yourself. Repent. Right? For the record, I don't flirt with the church secretary. <laughs> I don't do that. Right? There are safeguards in ministry that I follow and that are wise to follow in general. You know, and as, as sad or as sobering as it might be to think about these things or to learn about the grave sins of others, it can for us also be a great blessing at times, at the same time, because it helps us to be more aware of the sin and danger in our lives. Right? It's a, it's a good thing we can say, right, to learn from our mistakes. But is it not a wiser thing to learn from the mistakes of others? You don't need to touch the stove to know that it's hot. 
people have gone before you and done that and can prove it to you. Be wise. Learn from the grave failures and mistakes of others. That's why Paul is giving us this Old Testament warning. He's giving us a clear warning with an encouraging promise. And the promise leads into the third point, and it's this. In love, if you're following along in the notes, in love, God limits our temptations, which are common, quote-unquote common, and he provides a way or the way of escape. So there's the warning, don't do this, but God just doesn't yell at us and like leave us on our own. He says, no, I'm going to exhort you to not do this thing, to repent, to not go astray, and also I'm going to help you. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. That dad who gave that warning, had one of our students actually gone to the edge, he would have, no doubt, or I would have, or someone else would, pull them back. Right? We're not just going to exhort and then leave them on their own. We're going to help also. That's what God does for us. So let's unpack this a little bit. God limits our temptations, which are common, and he provides the way of escape. First, one of the lies that Satan wants you and me to buy into is that our sins and struggles are unique to us. That you and I, as we struggle with that sin, with that temptation, that you are alone, that you are the worst Christian ever. No one else is as bad as you are. Or, the opposite of that, Satan can also tempt us to believe, oh, you're not as bad as that guy. At least I'm doing better than he is or she is. That's also a temptation of the evil one. So the reminder here for us, and this is that word common, common, you are not alone. God, through Paul here, is telling us that our trials, your trials, my trials, the trials of your loved one, they are common to all humanity. This is not, you are not the first one to experience this, and you are not alone. You are not alone. Whatever your struggle is, hear this right here and now. Whatever your struggle is, you can be absolutely certain that a fellow brother or sister in Christ has struggled or is now struggling with the very same temptation, sin, guilt, and shame. 100%. 100%. We are not alone. We might walk around, you know, on Sunday and we wear our Sunday best or maybe something close to it and, and put on a happy face and we walk around and look like we got life pretty well buttoned up. But then we realize as we really get to know one another and the stories of other people, people struggle. People are hurting. People are tired. People are despairing of life. People are anxious. People are depressed. People are really having a hard go. We're not alone. The struggles that we face, Paul says, are common to humanity. So don't let the evil one tempt you into thinking that you're somehow this isolated sinner and everyone else is so far better than you are. That's a lie. So not only can we look to each other for encouragement to know that we're walking together in this struggle, we can also, of course, look to Jesus. This is what the writer of the Hebrews picks up. It's a beautiful passage, Hebrews 12, 1 to 4. Let me read it verbatim because it is such a beautiful thing. And I'll invite you, as you hear me read these four verses, don't look at me. Look at the cross. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Consider him who endured so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. If we need encouragement as we struggle, remember our struggles are common. You're not alone, and Jesus knows the struggle most of all. And he died for that sin and that struggle out of love for you. Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. So then let's unpack this next part here too. Paul is saying, he says, quote, God will not, because he is faithful, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay. Paul is not saying this. He is not saying God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that before? Have you maybe said it before? Yeah. It's not in the Bible. This passage probably is where that false idea comes from, but that's nowhere in Scripture. Sometimes the reality is, Scripture shows us, sometimes in life, God does give us more than we can handle so that finally, perhaps at last, we realize we need Him to handle it for us. But sometimes life has to, God in his wisdom, allows life at times to get so overwhelming that the only way that we can get through it is to say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. He loves you so much. He loves us so much that he might allow us to get to that point so that we come back to him. So there's wisdom in coming to him before it gets to that point. So that's what Paul is, is saying here. This is an important part of his passage too, and I know this is a, an in-depth reflection on this verse, but it's an important verse. Paul is saying here, when he, when he quotes this idea of the way of escape, he is saying, in other words, there will be an end to the trial or temptation that we face. God will bring it to a close. It will not last forever. That can be hard to believe in the throes of the valley of the shadow of death, right? It can be hard to believe. Or if you know the old Catholic treatise, The Dark Night of the Soul, when your soul is in that deepest, darkest place and you're despairing of life itself, it can be really hard to believe that this will end, but it will. That is part of the way of escape. Let's look at this in two ways. Two kinds of trials, if you will. This is kind of a broad brush here, but in regards to some trials and temptations, the way of escape may be a literal path of escape. Maybe a literal path of escape. Literally leaving the room or the building where that temptation has befallen you. Getting out. Whatever the temptation is, leaving. Or a way of escape might be Hitting the power button on the TV, turning it off, closing the lid on the laptop, turning off your phone, not clicking on the link that you know you shouldn't go watch the video about, right? Not having just one bite, 
not walking by the section of sweets in the store. <laughs> Avoiding it. Sometimes the way of escape is that clear. Just don't even go there. Right? And God gives us the grace to do that. There is an inherent way of escape. Instead of continuing the argument in the kitchen, breaking off, going outside to cool off and taking a walk, that's a way of escape to prevent that argument from boiling over into unrighteous anger and sin. So that's kind of one example. But another kind of trial, let's look at this too. In other trials, the way of escape is still there because God promises it will be, but it may not be immediate. These kind of trials are the rocky marriage, the loved one who is off his or her medication again, the prolonged unemployment, the difficult boss that you, you need that job, you can't quit it, but you're so sick and tired of working for this guy. The thinner bank account, the difficult financial season that draws on and on and on and on. These are the kind of trials that we can't just leave the room in, right? They persist. And in these kind of situations, most often, the only godly way out is through. There is a way of escape, but it's probably only at the other end of the tunnel. That may be hard to hear, but the encouraging part of what Paul is sharing here is that in these cases, God will bring the trial to an end. It will have an end. There is actually, to use that cliched phrase, a light at the end of the tunnel. But in Christ, the light is also with you in the darkness of the tunnel. He is walking with you, carrying you, praying for you, never leaving you nor forsaking you. God will see you through. These things will not last forever. They are temporary. In the eternal scheme of things, they're always temporary, right? If we die, if the Lord returns again, they're done. They're temporary in that sense. And then sometimes in the temporal sense, in the earthly sense, they're also temporary. They end before our life ends. Not always, but sometimes. But regardless, the way of escape means essentially in these cases, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. I had a pastor friend who told me one time who had dealt with many trials in his life, including cancer and health struggles with his spouse. He says, yes, this too shall pass. Like a kidney stone, but this too shall pass. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard, but God will bring it to an end and his grace is sufficient for this day. One of the hallmarks of people who have suffered and grown through trauma, and this goes back to my own research, is a greater appreciation for each day. Jesus actually knew what he was talking about when he says tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. Don't worry. The Lord is giving us grace for today. It may taste like gross, bland manna. The quail might be small, but we need not grumble. That's all we need for this day. And if tomorrow comes and the Lord blesses us to rise with that dawning sun, he'll give us grace for that day too. But that's not today. Live today.
Lastly, at the end of it all, Paul reminds us this, and this comes from 2 Timothy 2.13, just a brief point here as we conclude. Even if we are, this is Paul's quote, God's quote through Paul in 2 Timothy 2, even if we are faithless, God in Christ remains faithful. It's a beautiful word. God is love, and he loves the world faithfully regardless of what the world does to him. Nothing. Here is the encouragement for you, for us. No matter how bad things might get for our world or for us as individuals or the members of the body of Christ in our world, no matter how bad things may get in this life, God will never stop loving you. Amen? Amen. There's nothing that you can do or that someone else can do to you to hinder God loving you. He loves you perfectly because he is faithful. And as we think about the trials that our other family, friends, and loved ones might be going through and our heart is breaking for that person or for that situation, God will never stop loving them. Nothing that that person that's on our heart or mind Nothing that they do or don't do will ever prevent God from loving them perfectly. And so he loves you perfectly in the midst of that trial, and he loves them as they're enduring that trial and you together with them. God does not hate you. He loves you perfectly forever. And if you ever have any doubt about that, if your faith ever wavers, look again to Jesus and the trials he endured for you. If you need proof that God loves you, there's your proof. Jesus did that. Not just did that. Did that for you. He did that for you. Jesus brought death to an end so that death would not bring an end to us. He bore all our sins and griefs so we would not be crushed under an overwhelming load of sin. God is faithful. God is faithful. Say it with me. God is faithful. Say it again. God is faithful. He is. This one true God who endured all his trials and temptations perfectly, he intercedes for you, he lives for you, and he loves you. He is faithful. Amen. What a amazing message of hope and encouragement here and and next we'll have our song for today i've invited heather choate davis to share with her share, share with us one of her songs and uh she's got an amazing uh eclectic uh resume and so i'll leave a link here because there's way too many things to talk about here on a short podcast but for now i invited heather to um tell us about her song here so heather um go ahead Oh, Kevin, this song is so important to me because it's actually the song that God used to call me into making music and becoming a songwriter. I didn't have any history with that or background of that, not in singing, not in reading or writing music or playing any instruments or being in a choir or anything. And then I'd started a two-year program in spiritual direction. And in the first week, we'd all gone around the table, as people do in these things, and the cohort had introduced themselves. 
And afterwards, I was pondering, you know, all these stories of these lives and, and the things that people had been through and what they'd suffered through and how they longed to serve others in the name of God now. And I was just laying out on a slab of marble that afternoon, pondering that. And suddenly I heard the whole first verse and the chorus and the lyrics. And I thought, oh my goodness, what do I do with this? And I sat with that song in me for two years before I finally figured out that it was going to be on me to birth it. And I started taking piano. I gathered up people I knew to sing it. And all of the people in this song are neighbors who love the song so much. I hope you enjoy it.
was home.